this is Ken Nicolaitis, and I'm with the Advent Christian Voices, and uh, I am bringing you a message from my True Life in Christ ministry, which I have over here in Honolulu, um, broadcasting live from uh, Honolulu, actually my apartment, because normally I do it from the studio, but here we have better Wi-Fi connection. So I want to uh, express my gratitude to all of you listeners and viewers out there, and also to uh, thank uh, Tom Logree for his uh, inviting me to come on. So uh, we have been going through, I've been doing an exposition on the book of uh, Ephesians. Uh, I was debating whether I should wait till I get done with this because I'm, I'm actually close to the end. But I wanted to uh, just jump right in where I was and maybe finish up the last few weeks of that before I start another uh, book in the New Testament and decided which one I'm going to look at uh, at that time. But right now we happen to be in the sixth chapter of the book of Philippians, uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, and I am uh, discussing some of the components of the spiritual armor, which Paul mentions. So I wanted to talk about today the helmet of salvation, the fourth component of the spiritual arsenal mentioned there. And uh, I want to ask three simple questions about this um, essential component of our spiritual uh, arsenal. You know, number one, what is it? Number two, why do I need it? Number three, what must I do to make sure it's securely fastened and in place whenever I need it? So let's start with the first question. Um, what is the helmet of salvation that Paul refers to and assumes to be so essential to the spiritual warrior's weapon arsenal? And I think we can discover exactly what Paul means when he uses that phrase here, the helmet metaphor, because he also uses exactly the same metaphor when he's writing to the uh, Thessalonian church. Only, however, in that case, he defines it more specifically as the helmet of the hope of our salvation. We exist in a time when God's kingdom has already arrived here on earth in the hearts and minds of those who follow Christ, but uh, the complete arrival, the complete realization uh, of the kingdom has not yet been fulfilled, obviously. So we live in a in-between, a sort of in-between period of time and uh, between the first and second advents of our Lord. And this is a time when there's a great amount of tension uh, because the kingdom of God is here in a very real sense, and it's still also breaking in. It's still to come in a very real sense because there is another kingdom which is very much opposed to it, but it's also still here, and it's uh, to this uh, newly arrived kingdom of God, which Christ is setting up. That's why we continue to pray, thy kingdom come even though it's already been inaugurated through Christ's work here on earth. So even though we can say and mean and know that we have uh, been saved already, if we've put our faith in Christ, there's still a very real aspect to that salvation that has yet to be realized. So that's what it is that Paul means when he says the hope of our salvation. And, and that's what he's talking about here in the uh, metaphor for the helmet of our salvation. So why now hope is one of the three primary qualifications by which the Christian is defined, that is to say that the Christian life should be characterized by faith, hope, 
and love from Corinthians. So when we think about the Christian, what he looks like, the term hopeful should be one of the first things that come to mind. The Christian should be conspicuously hopeful. You remember how Peter uh, gives us the command to always be ready to give the reason for the hope that's in you. Well, the implication of that command is that someone's going to notice that you have a hopeful outlook on life. And this should be, in fact, so conspicuous that it causes people to wonder about it, not just to wonder about it, but to find something about it so attractive uh, that they actually want to uh, ask you. They want to know why. Why are you so happy? Why are you so hopeful? And when that happens, the reason you give isn't going to be because, you know, one of uh, you know, you've got something planned for the next day that you're looking forward to. When I was a chaplain <clears throat> overseas, I remember one particular occasion I was uh, I had just arrived in Baghdad and I, I met a, a sergeant there who really impressed me because when I met him, he, he had this big smile on his face. You know, in fact, it would be so uh obviously you could almost say he was grinning wherever i met him he he'd always be smiling and uh you know i was wondering what in the world is making him so happy over here in baghdad and i was very impressed by his uh his attitude but it occurred to me uh that when i found out <laughs> that he only had about 3 days left before his rotation was over <laughs> that uh, that was the reason why he uh, was in fact smiling so much. But it occurred to me that that was the way in which Christians should be all the time. Uh, their joy should be so conspicuously evident because of the hope which they have, so much so that it will even provoke others to want to ask why. Why are you so happy? I just can't fathom it. I can't see any reason for it. When our joy is real, then it becomes evident to others. We of all people should be in fact, the most full of joy, and we should be welling up with joy. And when that happens, people will be drawn to us. And I'll be the first con to confess that uh, I'm not always that way. And, uh, uh, you know, the next time I come on here, you may want to, I don't know if you have the opportunity to send questions and stuff like that, but you may want, want to, but I would challenge you. I would challenge you uh, to see if within the next week, you can, uh, exercise that kind of an attitude so much so that people will actually ask you. Have you ever had anybody ask you, you know, why? Why are you so hopeful? You know, Peter expects people be, to be asking us th those kinds of questions. So if that's never happened to you, uh, I would challenge you to try to examine yourself and see if you can put on a cheerful outlook so that uh, that will, in fact, be the case uh, before we meet again. And I'll uh, see if I can do the same for myself. So, and this is why Paul calls it the helmet of our salvation. It's because it's a most reasonable joy. We have a good reason why. Uh, and the reason we have this joy is because of what we know to be true, what we know in our minds. And this is the way we win converts. When they come to us and ask about this joy, we just tell them it's because of the fact that we have been forgiven. We've been made white as snow, perfectly righteous in the sight of God. And because of that, we now have been set free to enjoy life to the fullest, to be able to do and be all that we were ever meant to be or do. So we were created to rejoice and to reign over all of 
heaven and no one in heaven or hell or any powers that be in between can stop us or deter us uh, from doing all that a most gracious and loving God and Father in heaven has planned just for us. So we rejoice because the power that's been given to us as God's children through the blood Christ shed on the cross is greater than any other power this world has ever seen or known. It's even greater than the very power that created all things through the very spoken word of God itself in the beginning, because the things that are seen are merely temporal things. And the things that we have through Christ's sacrifice, well, that which we have is eternal in nature. And we rejoice because we're the bearers of good news, of great news, greater than anything we can imagine. It's what the Bible calls our blessed hope, in fact, that we have of the prospects that await us. Whenever, you know, I preach the gospel, I should remember that the gospel is not complete until it explains, it explains that Jesus is not finished with his work here on earth quite yet. Yes, he's finished a, a very important aspect of that, uh, work during his incarnation and when he took upon himself the sins of the world and went there to the cross and hung and died in our place in order to redeem us from the bondage of sin and so that we could have access to the Holy Spirit. However, just before he ascended to heaven to be with his father, he did make a few promises. One in particular of those promises was that he was going to return. And when he did, he was going to set things straight establishing his eternal kingdom and granting to those who believed in him eternal life. So this is the first good thing about it. The second good thing about it is when we talk about the hope which we have as Christians, we have to be careful not to confuse it with the hope that is sometimes used in the world, the way the word, word hope is sometimes used in the world today, because we might get the impression that this hope is just something that has some remote possibility or actual possibility of not being completely fulfilled, as is the case with, in fact, every other hope uh, that is ever held out to us by the world, certainly. Such as the hope we may have, like when I was a chaplain in uh, Baghdad, the hope of returning and completing my mission there, you know, that was a somewhat contingent hope. Or let me put it this way, we hope, for instance, that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. That's our expectation. That's our hope. That's when we go to bed at night. We want that to happen. But that hope is contingent. That hope is not absolutely certain as the hope that we have, that we profess in the return of Christ. That hope is certain. So that's a distinction I think that we need to make and we need to understand that the hope that we have in Christ is one that cannot be um disappointed. It's impossible for it to be disappointed. We may be disappointed if, in fact, we expect it to happen before it's going to happen, but ultimately it will happen. So we should uh, be absolutely confident about that fact. And that's the basic difference. So when we fix our hope on Christ's physical, visible, and glorious return and the rewards that are to be meted out at that time, then and then alone can it be said that our hope will never and will but can and will never, in fact, be disappointed. Then and then alone can it be said that our hope is a perfectly reasonable hope to have. Our salvation then, although already obtained for us, will be realized at that time and also made clearly evident to all. This is the hope of salvation, which will guard our hearts and minds and keep us. So this is the answer to the first question, what is the helmet of our salvation? 
It's the hope we have of our salvation that Christ will bring to fruition at the appropriate time. Next question. Why do we need to wear this helmet of salvation, this component that is so critical to our spiritual well-being? The illustration we have of it here, of course, tells us that it's critical uh, to our spiritual gear for several reasons, not the least of which is that any wound to this part of our uh, body, to our head, that is, can be fatal. And for instance, here in Hawaii, they don't care too much if you wear helmets or they don't have any law against wearing helmets on your motorcycle. I notice people uh, riding their motorcycles around here all the time without any helmets on. And I think that is absolutely absurd. It's a very poor message to send out. And I think it tells us a little bit about the values they have or the lack of values and appreciation for the values that they should place. Uh, they seem to be misdirected. Um, so the helmet is extremely important and we need to, uh, make sure that we wear it because it covers a very vulnerable part. The most vulnerable part of our faith has to do with the things that we know in our minds. We can do without it, other members of our body, for instance, and still live, but never without our head. So we have to protect it whenever there's any likelihood of a potential threat. And hope is the same way. Believe it or not, it's impossible to live without it. That's why suicide rates uh, are so high in this country. It's simply because people lose hope for the future. And when that happens, there's really no point in living. The one thing in common with all of those who choose to suicide do so because they cannot see any hope, or they have lost all hope. They have lost hope because they have been, been convinced by the lies they've been fed by the evil one that their future is hopeless. And we're all to some degree susceptible to believing those lies that tell us we're just no good or we just are downright rotten and we'll never measure up, we'll never have what it takes to make a difference in the lives of anyone, let alone our own or we won't be able to bear the pain that awaits us. So where do we hear those lies? Well, sometimes we hear them from those close to us, from our brothers, sisters, parents, children. <clears throat> Excuse me, we may hear them from certain self-professed teachers, who uh, those who appear to be in positions of authority. We may hear them on TV, radio, newspaper. We may read them in books or magazines that exaggerate the accomplishments of others and by contrast, minimize our own contributions. So whenever you allow yourself to listen to these kinds of lies long enough, they'll have an effect on your outlook. And we may have been guilty to some degree of disseminating. Don't ever uh, underestimate what God can do through your life. The best way for us to be able to guard against ever being persuaded by such untruths is to have a clear understanding of what is true and to know why it's true and so thereby be able to tell the difference. This is why it's so critical, not merely to have access to the this helmet of the hope of salvation, but to put it on and wear it. Because daily we are in fact being bombarded by untruths. Whenever we watch TV, see the news, we're actually only seeing a very, very limited and biased perspective of what is actually happening in the world today. I remember uh, when I was young, I'm giving away my age here, but uh, I used to watch the evening news with Walter Cronkite. 
And he would always sign off by saying, and that's the way it is. Well, for an impressionable youngster as, as I was, uh, that was quite an impressive statement for anyone to be able to make. But in retrospect, uh, you know, having been married and traveled around the world now for some time, uh, I can assure you that whatever Walter Cronkite may have thought was important enough to be broadcast on the evening news, the vast majority of people living in the world at that time would never have been aware of any of it. Or even if they had, they would have thought of it to be frankly irrelevant with absolutely no impact upon their lives. So let me tell you, let me just uh, share with you a little bit that you may not hear every day on the news. Did you know that every day there's a surplus of over a thousand new evangelical churches started around the world? I mean, by that, I mean, if you were to subtract the number of all churches closing in places like Europe, Great Britain, and the number of being planted in places like Africa, Asia, or South America, there are at least a thousand new ones averaging at least 40 Christians per church. And that's because there are every day over 40,000 people who accept Christ as their savior. Over 13 million people a year become Christian. And while the population of the world has grown over the last 60 years in a staggering proportions from uh, something like two and a half billion to presently close to seven billion, if not more, almost tripling during that same period, the percentage of the population represented by evangelical Christians has increased from somewhere around 6% to now over 12% in the total world population, which means there would have had to have been a sixfold increase in the number of evangelical Christians worldwide during the same period. So we may not have seen this happening in our own home countries because there has been a shift in demographics from where Christianity was once dominant in the Northern hemisphere and in the Western civilization from where, and uh, to now it's dominant in the Southern hemisphere and third world nations where God is now at work to a greater extent, it would appear. So let me just quote to you something that I read recently uh, well, not that long ago. Well, it's been a while, actually, but it's still relevant, and it's slightly dated, but it's still helpful. It starts out by saying this. God is winning. Christianity is openly mocked in all media, television, movies, print. Nightly news portrays the world seemingly in despair with no hope. The U.S., Canada, and Europe continue their downward slide away from God in their rejection of anything having to do with Christ and the Bible, even common sense and tenets of basic human morality are regularly attacked and vilified. Yet, the truth is that in our time worldwide, God is winning. The Holy Spirit is greatly moving in what was once called the third world. We need to be thankful and even amazed at what God is doing. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. That's from Habakkuk 1-5, I believe. <clears throat> Not that long ago, three million believers paraded through Sao Paulo, Brazil, the world's largest march for Jesus. The number of Christians in Indonesia has grown from 1.3 to over 11 million, or closer to 12 million Christians today. Thanks to God's working through Wycliffe's Vision 2025, the work of Bible translation has been accelerated by over 100 years and now is on pace to be completed by 2042. And that's about 2,600 languages. The Jesus film has been translated into nearly 1,000 languages, and over 200 million people have indicated decisions for Christ as a result of that film. Missionaries 
uh, founded churches in Japan are being turned over to nationals to lead so missionaries can plan other churches. No Christian was officially allowed to live in Nepal until 1960. Today, there's a church in every one of the 75 districts in Nepal, which estimates uh, with over a half a million uh, believers. Did you know that in AD 100, there was only one Christian for every 360 people in the world? Today, the ratio is less than one to seven. As the Holy Spirit has done more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. Today, Muslims are coming to face faith in Christ in droves every month in Iran, a country ranked among the top 10 persecutors of Christians. We're seeing in Bangladesh Book of Acts, a church leader there wrote to a friend recently, by your strong prayers, the church has saved uh, about 4,500 people, planted 150 churches uh, in the last six months. Our goal is to plant another 300 and see 9,000 saved next year. Every day, 20,000 Africans come to Christ. Christ was 3% Christian in 1900 and now is over 50%. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church in the country. It was deemed impossible to penetrate. Today, it's over 30% Christian with 7,000 churches in Seoul alone. And several of those have over a million. I attended one, by the way, that has over a million members. It was really amazing to see because... Um, they can only fit about 100,000 in their sanctuary, so they have uh, 10 meetings every Sunday. Uh, so that was quite impressive. Christian radio is being invited into places such as Russian prisons that would not allow missionaries before soldiers are abandon, abandoning pillaging missions when they listen to these stolen radios and they're accepting the Lord. These fixed tune radios are broadcasting Christian programming native languages. Every day, 50,000 people in countries served by Asia Access uh, come to Christ. Recently, Fellowship of Christian Athletes had over 5,500 campus clubs called Huddles with more than 275,000 participating. The government of Papua New Guinea recently mandated Bible teaching in every school in the country. Not that long ago, FCA, that's the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, received above 100,000 at over 150 fields of faith events around the countries uh, that was initiated with only 6,000 people. And there are currently, uh, conservative estimates would guess, 80 plus million Christians in China between 10 to 25,000 converts a day. More people worldwide are committed to praying for worldwide revival than ever before. And based on forecasts from organizations such as World Bank of the United and the United Nations, the world net population is forecasted to grow at least uh, at less, actually, than 2% annually. In other words, if Christians can lead others to receive Christ faster than that, the loss can be reached at an ever-increasing rate. If only one out of every six believers reproduce themselves once a year, the entire world would be reached. Uh, by the year 2020. That's not that far away. The Lord's Great Commission can be accomplished. People from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation can be told about the awesome grace and mighty power of God. And God is giving his people the opportunity to be part of making it happen in the lifetime of this current generation. Granted, when Paul first wrote this epistle, he didn't have as much tangible proof 
of the veracity of the Christian faith, but he had a vision that was based on an encounter with the living God. I suppose no matter how much evidence you throw in someone's face about the reality of the coming kingdom of God, unless the Holy Spirit does a work that in that person's heart, they will remain in darkness. But we as believers have no such excuses. So we need to keep our helmets of the hope of our salvation securely on our heads. And we do that. How do we do that? We do that simply, well, by being aware of some of these facts of what is going on in the world today, by knowing what we believe and why we believe it, so that we cannot ever be led off track by the deceitful things that are being pushed into our faces through the desperate tactics of the world and the principalities behind them as they see their own kingdom crumbling before their very eyes, the glory of God and his kingdom as it marches ever onward. Amen. Well, that brings me to the end of my broadcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and I'll look forward to seeing you again very soon. God bless you. This is Kim Nicolaides signing off.